I guess when it comes to the Bible and stories in Scripture, um, some of them can take you on a bit of a roller coaster ride. And for me personally, this is one of those stories. This episode in Joseph's life certainly does that for me because this is your classic, classic success story. It's a young boy from the slums, from the lowest of the low, makes it big in the ranks of an organization which is part of a very great world power. Have a look at Genesis chapter 39. At the beginning, we see that it starts off after, after being sold into slavery, Joseph is taken down into Egypt and is sold to Pharaoh's captain of the guard, a man named Potiphar. We're told in the text, verses 1 to 4, that whilst Joseph is with Potiphar, that he and the entire household prospers. He rises up the ranks of the household responsibility to the point of becoming Potiphar's attendant. So in one respect, it's a little bit like not his apprentice, but almost the position of Alan Sugar's personal assistant. By verse 6, we see just how huge the responsibility Joseph had and the trust he'd been given. So if more resources needed to be had, like servants or equipment, Joseph sorted it out. If there were problems with staff disputes or issues that crept up in the surrounding land and property that belonged to Potiphar, it was left to Joseph. Verse 6 says that Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. The trust Potiphar had in Joseph was big to the extent that Potiphar needed only to care about his military duties and enjoy the food he ate. So there you have it. The success story of the region, a boy who, despite the odds, works his way to the top from rags to riches, from servant to the running of an entire household of a military leader. A story of humble beginnings that Richard Branson, Alan Sugar, Charlie Chaplin would relate to and resonate with. A story of a man that used shrewdness and wisdom in business so well that Warren Buffett would be unable not to take notice, all wanting to pat this kid on the back, say, well done, you did really good. But the issue, though, and some of you, especially if you're in positions of high responsibility and status could relate to this, is that when you do reach the top of your game, it doesn't get any easier, necessarily. If you have made it to the high ranks of anything, it's not always about how to take the next step up, but actually how not to fall from it. And we see it all the time, countless stories over and over again of people who have worked from the bottom, making it to the top, only to slip into some form of scandal because they got greedy and thought no one would ever find out, and it hits the tabloids and the reputation is ripped to shreds by the media. Well, the difference we have in this story is that Joseph, who has to suffer the ordeal of being rejected and sold into slavery by his brothers at the beginning, who eventually on getting to a position of great trust and respect is then convicted of a crime he didn't commit, finds himself on a sex offense register, and ends up in a situation worse off than before, prison. All because the lady cried wolf. The success story that falls apart and he's innocent. He gets a prison cell for his integrity. You see, despite his position of being a slave and having a very tempting offer to shack up with quite possibly the hottest woman in the neighborhood, he wasn't stupid. He wasn't going to mess with fire. Verse 12 says he fled. Despite what he could have been offered by her, Joseph was far more concerned for his purity than anything else. He had the perspective to name it for what it was, sin. A wicked thing against God. 
I don't think it's unfair to think Joseph probably really was very tempted. He was a slave after all, and what possibility did he have of getting married? It would have met a physical need, at least that. And who knows what favors she could have given him further down the line. But Joseph is thinking differently. He resisted temptation because he had a different perspective. Joseph didn't have the law like we do, but he knew what sin was. He doesn't say, how can I do a wicked thing and sin against my master? No, he says, how can I do a wicked thing and sin against God? He calls it a wicked thing because that's what God calls it. Not only did Joseph want to protect his purity regardless of the prospects, but it's very clear that with all he went through before this chapter and beyond, that he really had a trust and love for the Lord. His motivation to be pure was because of his relationship with God. His love for God did not just enable him to be pure, it motivated him to be pure. He didn't want to sin against God. That's how he resisted temptation. It's interesting that if you compare this chapter with the previous one, they're both two different accounts of the same area of sin. In chapter 38, we have Judah, the fourth eldest brother, a man with a respectful position and wealth who has just lost his wife and is sleeping with his daughter-in-law who he thinks is a prostitute. This is in contrast to Joseph in 39, a slave at a very low position, doing everything he can to protect his purity. Choosing righteousness certainly does not depend on any form of position, status, or circumstance. There's something else, though, going on in this story, something far bigger. Despite the circumstance, despite the temptation, passage clearly tells us that God is working through the whole thing. And one lesson we can learn from this passage that when you back off from the chapter, is that God can often choose to bless us in difficult situations rather than place us in what we think might be happier ones. When you look at the structure of this passage, you'll notice that it starts and ends in the same way. Even though he was right at the bottom starting as a slave when he arrived in Egypt, we're told that the Lord was with him so that he prospered the household of his master because of the Lord he found favor in part of his eyes and was put in charge of everything. God blessed him in slavery, but then we come to the end of the chapter in verse 20 to 23 while he's in prison, and we see the same thing is happening here in the same way the passage started. And Don Carson says this about this passage. He says that when we find a chunk of text that begins and ends with the same theme or in the same way, it's one way of drawing your attention, telling us how we should read that entire chapter. This is a chapter that teaches us that God often chooses to bless us in difficult circumstances rather than place us in happier ones. And those difficult circumstances are maybe circumstances where temptation is live and all around us. And that's not all. There is an even bigger plan here, which we saw a little bit last week, and we'll see at the end of the series, that all of this is actually not just about Joseph. God is working something out far greater for his entire family, which in turn will save an entire nation, his own people. But the assumption is that looking at the first few verses and the closing ones is that God gives grace and is sovereign in the hardest of situations, even temptation, and he is working. Well, look, if you are facing any kind of temptation at the moment in your workplace, then pray. And this account, this context is specifically sexual sin. 
That's huge. And if that's the situation, then ask God for purity. Call it sin, run from it, fear God, and hopefully you keep your integrity and your job and your marriage if you are. And I think it's fair to say regarding sexual sin that part of all that is really to do with where your mind is. If our minds are regularly, secretly meditating on sexual impurity, then when given the opportunity, how likely are we to be able to run from it when any offer is actually right there in front of us? But then I'm also aware that there may be some listening to this where actually it's too late. It's happened. Or you know well the consequences of the choices you've made in the past and it's painful. Or maybe you look at the life of Joseph and his integrity, trusting God with all his heart, and you think, I'm actually very far from being like that. And if we're honest, that's probably more the truth for most of us. In fact, Let's have a look at the story from a slightly different angle. If we look at the situation in regards of what happened to Joseph on a surface level, we say, what a tragedy. A hard-working man is working his way to the top, only to be accused and convicted of a crime he didn't commit. What's your reaction? Probably gutting, annoyed, upset. And your reaction to the woman who put him there? Probably anger, distorting and changing the truth so that she came out okay. A woman prepared to do anything to get what she wanted, even if it meant someone else losing everything. Someone prepared to do anything to get what they want, even if it means someone else loses everything. Well, the Bible says that we're actually like that as well. And no, no, I'm not not saying you've necessarily tried it on with your colleague. But Jesus says in Mark 7, 21 to 23, that he says this, that, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. You might not think you're anything like Potiphar's wife or have done anything like what she may have done, but can you honestly say you've never twisted the truth in such a way that everything works out for you? Or that you were so desperate to get a certain result in your work or in some other context that you were prepared to do anything, even if it meant someone else had to suffer. Maybe they deserved it. You didn't like them. They were were irritating or an unpleasant individual generally. In one sense, it doesn't really matter. We're taught here from Mark's gospel that deep inside, we have the inherent nature to do the same thing to someone else and do whatever we can to get away with it. Whether we have done anything like what Potiphar's wife has done or not, Mark 7, 21 to 23 is true of all of us. We're all prone to sin, regardless of the length or depth we may have gone to. Joseph is a fine example of an upright man who knew the consequences of what could happen and fled the temptation. But this story also gives us, it really does give us an opportunity and a freedom to see who we really are and what we're potentially capable of doing as well. And if that's the case, then what's the solution? Well, Joseph, our hero, the boy who makes big, inspiring as he was, is really a signpost for us to someone far, far greater. The one who really was the criminal, who really did wrong, got off scot-free, whilst the one who was innocent gets the punishment. That's in this story. Does it sound familiar? Well, hundreds of years later, the exact same thing happened. Jesus Christ who had done nothing wrong, gets nailed to a cross. But this time it was for us. It was the punishment we should have got because of those things that Jesus points out in Mark 7 that dwell within our own heart. 
all because of sin, which is our rejection of God's rule in our lives. You see, unlike Joseph, who was shown mercy and grace whilst in prison, by God, the Father, Jesus Christ lost everything, was shown no mercy, and was utterly forsaken by his Father so that we could go free and not face the punishment that we deserve. But whatever you've done, in the past, whether you gave in to temptation or were responsible for someone else's unjust suffering, then confess it if you haven't already done so and, and then take it to the cross where there is forgiveness because the blood that Christ shed will cover it completely. Listen, if, if we can look at the character of Potiphar's wife and the evil she did and be angry by the injustice of it, but also see ourselves and what we're capable of doing or have done to others, how can this not stir us to rejoice and be overwhelmed with praise to the same God who gives us this salvation which we don't deserve. I'm going to close there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son and the salvation we have in him. We ask that you forgive us for the times at which we know that we've let you down. And as, as we go into the, the rest of the day, that we ask for your grace to trust you in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, to look to your sovereignty and to be encouraged by that. In Jesus' name, amen.